York. This is Democracy Now! On this anniversary of Roe v. Wade, or what would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, we're seeing two hugely important trends happening at once. One, of course, is that a certain number of states are rushing to ban abortion, and in at least 12 states, abortion is banned. The other is that there's a burgeoning movement to restore and expand access to abortion and all reproductive health care. And that movement is making history in cities and states across America. This Sunday would have marked the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. We'll get an update on the state of abortion access across the country with The Nation magazine's Amy Littlefield. Then, as Senator Bernie Sanders gives a national address on the state of America's working class, we'll look at the growing problem of medicine. I see a nation where unbelievably over 500,000 people go bankrupt each year because of medically related debt. You got that? You were sick. You had a cancer operation. And you know what you get? You go bankrupt as a result. Every time I check my mail, every time I receive an 866 call, which now I know is the debt collection agency's number, every time I see a reminded text, I'm just reminded of how much debt I'm in. And it just makes me really anxious. We'll hear about the national movement to stop hospitals suing patients, garnishing wages, putting liens on homes of people who face medical debt they can't repay. Then elite capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else. Solidarity unites working people against the corporate elite and isn't satisfied with symbolic victories or the mere appearance of justice. We'll speak with philosopher Olufemi Otaiwo. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The top three officials in Ukraine's interior ministry have been killed when their helicopter crashed near a kindergarten in a suburb outside Kyiv. At least 17 people died, including Ukraine's interior minister, his first deputy minister, and the state secretary. Three of the dead were children on the ground. The injured also included 17 children. At the time of the crash, the Ukrainian officials were heading to the front lines in eastern Ukraine. It's not clear what caused the helicopter crash. There was heavy fog at the time. Ukraine's interior minister, Denis Monastirsky, is Ukraine's highest-profile casualty since Russia invaded Ukraine 11 months ago. This comes as direct U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine continues to escalate. On Tuesday, U.S. General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, met the head of the Ukrainian military at a Polish military base. It was their first face-to-face meeting since the war began. Meanwhile, about 100 Ukrainian troops have arrived in the United States for training at Fort Sill, a U.S. Army base in Oklahoma. The Pentagon says the training will focus on using the Patriot missile system. In related news, the New York Times has revealed the Pentagon has sent hundreds of thousands of artillery shells to Ukraine from a little-known U.S. stockpile of ammunition in Israel. 
In the Philippines, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate and journalist Maria Ressa has been acquitted of tax evasion charges in what was widely seen as a politically motivated case. Ressa is the founder of the independent news outlet Rappler and was a vocal critic of the former Filipino president, Rodrigo Duterte, whose government filed the charges. Ressa spoke earlier today. These charges, as you know, were politically motivated. They were incredible to us. A brazen abuse of power and meant to stop journalists from doing their jobs. Today, facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. Despite today's acquittal, Maria Ressa's legal problems are not over. She's currently on bail as she appeals a six-year prison sentence handed down in 2020 for a libel conviction. Visit democracynow.org to see our interviews with the Nobel laureate Maria Ressa. In the United States, House Republicans have placed far-right election deniers Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar on the powerful House Oversight and Accountability Committee. This comes two years after Democrats removed them from their committee posts for calling for violence against Democrats on social media. Greene, who once claimed there was a, quote, Islamic invasion into our government offices, will also serve on the Homeland Security Committee. Gosar will also rejoin the Natural Resources Committee. In 2020, the House censured him for posting an animated video on social media where he murders Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacks President Biden. A number of other members of the far-right Freedom Caucus also received prominent committee posts. Meanwhile, Republican Congressmember George Santos has been picked to serve on two committees, even though he's facing calls to resign, even from many members of the Republican Party, after he lied about his educational background, his employment history, his religion, and much more. Santos will reportedly serve on the House Small Business Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. This all comes a week after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced he'll strip three prominent Democrats, Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell and Ilhan Omar, of their committee assignments. The White House is blasting Republican lawmakers for pushing for major spending cuts as part of a deal to raise the debt limit. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre spoke Tuesday. This is not a plan. It is a recipe for economic catastrophe. As President Biden has made clear, Congress must deal with the debt limit and must do so without conditions. But congressional Republicans are threatening to hold the nation's full faith and credit, a mandate of the Constitution, hostage to their demands to cut Social Security, to cut Medicare, and to cut Medicaid. The U.S. will technically hit the debt ceiling on Thursday, but Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said extraordinary measures can be taken to keep paying the government's bills until early June. In Brazil, the prosecutor general has charged 39 supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro in connection with the January 8th attack on the Brazilian Supreme Court, Congress and Presidential Palace in the capital, Brasilia. The defendants are charged with staging a coup and other crimes. The charges come days after Brazil's Supreme Court announced it would investigate Bolsonaro for inspiring the January 8th attack. He's currently in the United States. 
An Iranian-American who's been jailed in Tehran since 2015 has become a week, begun a week-long hunger strike. In an open letter to President Biden, Siamak Namazi describes himself as having the, quote, unenviable title of the longest-held Iranian-American hostage in history. He was arrested along with his father on a business trip in 2015 and convicted of cooperating with a hostile government. Thousands of Peruvians from rural areas are gathering in the capital, Lima, to demand the resignation of President Dina Baluarte, who took power last month after the ouster and arrest of leftist President Pedro Castillo. The protests are being led by indigenous, peasant and trade union groups opposed to the December coup. At least 50 protesters have been killed since Castillo's ouster. On Tuesday, police in Lima fired tear gas at demonstrators who vowed to remain in the street. We are from Chota, Cajamarca. We've come to Lima to defend our country, considering that we are under a dictatorial government, a militarist government, which has stained our country with blood. Climate protests are continuing in Germany over the expansion of an open-pit coal mine in the village of Lützerath in western Germany. On Tuesday, police detained Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg for the second time this week. Three officers dressed in riot gear were seen carrying her away after she joined other activists attempting to block the front of the coal mine. Thunberg tweeted early today, climate protection is not a crime. Amnesty International is calling for an investigation into the death of a prominent imprisoned dissident in the oil-rich West African nation of Equatorial Guinea. The 51-year-old Julio Obama Mefuman, who is also a citizen of Spain, had been serving a 60-year jail sentence. In 2017, he and another dissident had been kidnapped in South Sudan and brought to Equatorial Guinea to be imprisoned. Just two weeks ago, Spain announced it'll investigate the circumstances of how the men were seized. Equatorial Guinea has been led by the U.S.-backed dictator Teodoro Obiang Nguema Mbasogo since 1979. He's the longest-serving president in the world. Back in the United States, the Justice Department has decided it won't seek the death penalty for the Texas man accused of shooting dead 23 people, mostly Latinos, at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, in 2019. It was one of the deadliest attacks on the Latinx population in U.S. history. The shooter, Patrick Cousius, admitted to targeting Latinos in the attack. He could still face the death penalty if convicted on state charges in Texas. And hundreds of faculty at the University of Illinois, Chicago, launched an indefinite strike Tuesday after failed contract negotiations. Their demands include fair wages that reflect historic inflation, mental health support and learning disability assessments for students. This is Aaron Kral, a senior English lecturer speaking at Tuesday's rally. We're also out here fighting for job security for non-tenure system faculty. seen universities around this country relying on contingent labor as the state retreats from the financing of higher education. Is that right? No. Is higher education a public good? Yeah. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. 
Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, this Sunday, January 22nd, would have marked the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark Roe v. Wade decision that guaranteed a constitutional right to abortion. But just over six months ago, the court upended five decades of legal precedent when it struck down Roe v. Wade in the case known as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. The court's removal of the right to safe legal abortions has led to total abortion bans in 12 states, with low-income and Black and Latinx and Indigenous people among the most impacted. Meanwhile, the push to ensure access to abortion has spurred new legal challenges and greater reliance on medical—on the uh, medical pill, the abortion pill, methapristone, as medication abortions account for more than half of all U.S. abortions today. Starting today, New York City plans to offer free abortion pills at four sexual health clinics. For more, we're joined by Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent at The Nation. Her most recent piece is headlined, Cities and States Are Acting Fast to Blunt the Impact of Dobbs. She's just back from New Mexico, where activists are working to expand abortion access as people seek help there from neighboring states like Texas, where abortion bans are in place. Amy Littlefield, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you give us a lay of the land of abortion access around this country today? It's so great to be back with you, Amy and Juan, um, on this somber and also, I would say, hopeful anniversary, or uh, what would have been the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. So I want to talk about the literal map of abortion access in this country right now. As you mentioned, 12 states ban abortion entirely in this moment, with some limited exceptions, depending on how each state law is different in terms of how dead or how sick the pregnant person has to be before there can be an intervention to save their life and, and terminate the pregnancy. Most of the states that have these bans do not make exceptions for rape or incest. And what's really important, Amy, is when you look at the map, there's Idaho and South Dakota, and then there's 10 states with these total bans that are all in a row in a deep red brick wall across the South. So if you start in El Paso, Texas, and move to the east, to the eastern edge of Alabama, we're talking about a solid block of 10 states moving up north to Missouri and to West Virginia in the east. We're talking about states all in a row, multi-states deep, more than 1,300 miles of states pushed together where legal abortion is effectively gone. And I want to tell you a number that I can't stop thinking about since I found it, which is 58,000. Amy, that's the number of abortions that happened in Texas in 2020, 58,000, okay? That's like a decent-sized city, right, that happens to be composed entirely of people of childbearing age, most of whom are women and also trans and gender nonconforming people who are pregnant and don't want to be. And I ask you to imagine in this landscape, this deep brick wall of abortion bans, where those 58,000 people are going to go, right? What happens to them? And we know, you know, from speaking to, to, to activists in states like New Mexico, some of them are making it out. Some of them are making these arduous journeys, you know, in cars filled with sleeping bags and coolers. They're driving across state lines. They're, they're boarding planes as part of airlifts coordinated by grassroots activists. Um, but I think 
the emerging picture is that that is the exception and not the rule. And there are an untold number of people staying pregnant against their will, um, despite the best efforts of activists to help them get access to abortion pills, even in states where abortion is banned, or to get outside of the state to seek legal abortion elsewhere. Well, uh, Amy, there have been some states that have enacted laws that strengthen abortion rights or rejected ballot initiatives that would restrict the procedure. Could you talk about some of those states and how what they are doing in effect to assist those in the uh, abortion ban states? Absolutely, Juan. And you're so right. I mean, there is this emerging picture of states on the one hand going as far as they can to ban abortion. And then on the other hand, this really historic um, momentum building behind um, pro-abortion rights policies that once would have felt unheard of in this country. And that's happening not just in blue states like California and New York, um, Washington, Oregon, and Illinois. It's also happening in cities and counties within these deep red states. So, for example, Nashville, Tennessee, um, the city council there has passed legislation deprioritizing enforcement of abortion-related crimes because abortion is illegal in Tennessee. So the Nashville city councilors said, well, what can we do? You know, they have also allocated half a million dollars to Planned Parenthood to fund reproductive health care. So we're seeing cities and counties trying to step up. Atlanta is another one that's directed public funding as well as Seattle, right? A city that you might have expected that from. New Orleans, cities in Denton, Texas. These are places that are passing proactive measures to blunt the impact of criminal abortion laws and also to try to shore up reproductive health care access wherever they can. In the first three months after the Dobbs decision came down reversing Roe v. Wade, we saw 17 states and at least 24 municipalities moving to expand or protect abortion access. That's according to the National Institute for Reproductive Health. So that's really historic. And it speaks to a huge surge in momentum. And I think a lot of Democratic politicians at the local and county and state level understanding that there's tremendous power in local government. Now, the anti-abortion movement was very savvy about realizing that before, um, but I think we're seeing a, a long overdue recognition of the power of local government among progressives right now. And could you talk as well about uh, the actions of the uh, federal government, of the Biden administration and the announcement earlier this month of the Food and Drug Administration? Right. So what happened earlier this month is that the Food and Drug Administration announced an easing of restrictions on mifepristone, the abortion pill, which is one of the medications taken to induce a medication abortion. And what it will allow is for the abortion pill to be sold in retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens if someone has a prescription. This is a game changer for people who live in states where abortion is illegal, who might be able to go to a CVS or Walgreens. This is if these pharmacies go through the certification process the FDA has set up. Then you can go to a CVS or a Walgreens in a state like Massachusetts, where I am, or New York, and get your prescription for um, the abortion pill filled there, which is a huge, you know, shift. I mean, before, because of the pandemic, the Biden administration had made um, the abortion pill available through the mail. 
from mail order pharmacies. Um, before that, you had to go in person to a clinic in order to get it. So this is a game changer, but one that affects people in states where abortion is already legal. Um, the same thing with with Mayor Eric Adams' decision and the the public health clinics that are going to be offering um, the abortion pill in New York City for free. I mean, that's a huge, um, hugely significant decision. I think each of these decisions t- moves the Overton window, right? It takes a step towards destigmatizing abortion and could lead to people in states where abortion is banned, you know, in Tennessee and Arkansas, um, demanding not just you know, a, a re-implementation of the protections in Roe v. Wade, but free abortion pills in the public health clinic. If it's happening in New York City, I think that shifts the Overton window for everyone else. And I want to say, you know, just not to give Eric Adams too much credit here, I want to just say these movements, these victories belong to the movements that are advocating to that for them and not to the politicians, because we know Democrats have spent a long time <laughs> treading water when it comes to expanding abortion access. And I think they're moving now because of this crisis and because of the enormous amount of momentum behind the deeply popular right to an abortion and and restoring it and expanding it. It may have explained why the um, House uh, division between Democrats and Republicans is so close that it wasn't a red wave, as many had predicted, because of people's concern about uh, reproductive rights access. But what about, for example— Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, who ran on a very pro-choice stand against Lee Zeldin, fiercely anti-choice, and yet she appoints to the—or she nominates to the highest court uh, Hector LaSalle. Many progressives are um, condemning this move because he is anti-choice, not to mention anti-labor. Absolutely, Amy. And I have to say the sound and the fury that are emerging, the enormous amount of resistance around LaSalle's nomination shows what happens when two of the most... um, enormously powerful and surging um, underpinnings of the Democratic Party's power get together, right? Labor unions, on the one hand, opposing LaSalle's um, stance against unions and rulings against unions, and then abortion rights, right? I mean, I wish we saw more collaboration, and I think we will, between those two extremely powerful movements. Um, But the reason why LaSalle is a, a deep concern for supporters of abortion rights and the other day, more than 100 um, experts and advocates and organizations that support abortion rights signed on to a letter opposing his nomination is because of a ruling um, in favor of crisis pregnancy centers. These are anti-abortion centers that often pose as abortion clinics that try to look like medical clinics. And when Attorney General Eric Schneiderman tried to investigate them several years ago, he was stymied by a ruling um, that LaSalle had signed on to. And so that's a tremendous concern especially because, you know, these policies like the one in New York City to um, issue free abortion pills in in public health centers, um, the the efforts by the New York state legislature to shore up abortion access, they don't mean anything if the courts are against those policies. And if the highest court in the land is going to come down and and reverse those policies or stymie those policies because of an anti-abortion stance, 
then, you know, these policies, even in a, a state like New York that's considered safe, are, are dead in the water. And so this is hugely consequential. Um, and I think it's clear that Kathy Hochul didn't read the writing on the wall, right? I mean, Democrats owe the fact that they averted a total disaster in the midterms to the reversal of Roe v. Wade and the enormous amount of work and grassroots organizing that went into pushing back against that um, overturn and trying to restore abortion rights. I mean, if you don't believe me, consider the fact that there were six states where abortion was directly on the ballot in the midterms, okay, starting with Kansas um, in, in August, of course, which we talked about on this show. And even in red states like Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, the abortion rights position won in every single one of those ballot measures. And so what that says is that the Democratic base is fired up on this issue. It sees a connection between abortion and econo other economic issues. And um, and some Democrats are recognizing that. And it would seem some Democrats like Kathy Hochul are not understanding uh, precisely what their constituents want. Uh, and Amy, we just have a few seconds left, but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you'd been to New Mexico recently. Uh, and uh the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Could you talk about what you saw on the ground there? Yeah, so I, I visited the headquarters of the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which is an abortion fund that provides practical support. They help with the logistics of people traveling to New Mexico. And again, remember, New Mexico is right to the west, bordering Texas, that state where there were 58,000 abortions in 2020, okay? And this is a state that had about a tenth of that in terms of their 2020 numbers for abortions. So this is a grassroots organization. Every week, they were serve 10 spots on an airplane to bring patients from Texas and airlift them to New Mexico for an abortion. And they have set up their offices have become what looks like sort of a field hospital in this new borderland of abortion access. They've got cots for people to rest on. They've got heating pads that were stitched by volunteers, cookies baked by volunteers, freezers full of frozen dinners, maxi pads, toys for kids. I mean, it's this real, it's this way station for people who are making the long journey from out of state, mostly from Texas, to come to New Mexico, which has become this haven destination for abortion. You're seeing clinics following the flow of patients moving to New Mexico from states where abortion is banned. Um, but the most chilling thing that stuck with me from this visit, Juan, is that they told me that they don't always, they're not always able to fill those 10 spots on the airplanes that they, they fly each week. Sometimes they have seven people coming. Sometimes they have fewer. And what I think that speaks to is an enormous amount of confusion and an enormous amount of... Um, of sort of lack of information for people who need an abortion and might not know where to go. And we don't know how many of those patients are self-managing an abortion with the help of grassroots organizations or, or you know, semi-underground networks. We don't know how many of those people are just staying pregnant against their will. And that really is the human rights crisis that is unfolding in real time right in front of us on this Roe v. Wade anniversary. Amy Littlefield, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Abortion access correspondent at The Nation will link to your latest piece. Cities and states are acting fast to blunt the impact of Dobbs. 
Next up, as Senator Bernie Sanders gives a national address on the state of America's working class, we'll look at what he addressed last night, the growing problem of medical debt and the movement to stop hospitals from suing patients, having their wages garnished, putting liens on the homes of people facing medical bills they cannot afford. Stay with us. It's a fire These dreams They pass me by The salvation I desire Keeps getting me down Cause we need To Recognize Mistakes for time and again So let it be known For what we believe in Portishead's It's a Fire, performed by Rhiannon Giddens and Amanda Palmer. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez in a major address Tuesday evening from the U.S. Capitol. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont gave a national address on the state of America's working class. He focused in part on the growing problem of medical debt. I see, I see a nation where over 85 million of our people are either uninsured or underinsured. And as all of you know, we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. I see a nation where unbelievably over 500,000 people go bankrupt each year because of medically related debt. You got that? You were sick. You had a cancer operation. And you know what you get? You go bankrupt as a result. Does that make any sense to anybody? I see a nation, and we don't talk about this at all, virtually nobody talks about this, where over 68,000 people die each year because they can't afford the health care they need. I have talked to doctor after doctor in Vermont and around the country, telling me about patients who walked in the door terribly ill. And the doctor says, why didn't you come when your symptoms, when you first felt your symptoms? They said, I don't have any insurance, I can't afford to pay it. And thousands and thousands of people finally crawl into the doctor's office, and it's too late, and they die in the United States. Senator Bernie Sanders speaking Tuesday night in a major address on the state of America's working class. To see the whole address, go to democracynow.org. But today we're going to look at how more patients are speaking out as they struggle with medical debt. The health care reform group, We the Patients New York, a project of the Community Service Society, has spoken to many patients. This is Anthony Calafura's story. So slightly over a year ago from now, I was committed to the psych ward after a failed suicide attempt. I was there for 14 days. It genuinely helped me until I received my bill afterwards. But thankfully, I was under my estranged father's insurance. But even then, and currently today, I am over $2,000 in debt. 
and my mother has refused to help me pay. So I've essentially been forced to kind of figure out this whole situation by myself. And when I was committed, I was 17. So after I got released, when I tried calling like the hospitals, there wasn't much I could do because I was still a minor. And it just felt like a circle and I never really got like actual advice on what to do. Now that I'm 18, it's been like six months since I've been released, so all my debt has been transferred to the debt collection agency. Nobody around me really knows what to do, and this whole situation has just been causing me so much stress. It's like every time I check my mail, every time I receive an 866 call, which now I know is the debt collection agency's number, every time I see a reminded text, I'm just reminded of how much debt I'm in, and it just makes me really anxious, and it's been really not good for my mental health, which is why I'm even in debt in the first place, was to get better. I think there should be a lot of change within the medical system. I think in schools, they should teach you about how insurance works even, how to manage debt. For the most part, I've just felt really alone, even when there are 23 million Americans in debt, which is essentially one in 10 Americans. In general, the U.S. healthcare system, people shouldn't have to go into debt with like little knowledge on what to do after just to get the medical care that they need. People also just shouldn't be afraid and resistant to going to the doctors in fear of the bill that they're going to receive after. And this is Cheryl Wilson talking about her medical debt struggles after getting surgery. In 2018, I had surgery at the Staten Island University Hospital. I received a bill from the attorney stating I owed $100,000 for that surgery. I'm still receiving bills. It is affecting my credit. I'm striving hard, and I did not know what the future was going to hold for me. I'm receiving Social Security. I do have a small pension, but I'm a homeowner. I have to get around so we have, you know, you have your car. I'm a state officials. It needs to be heard and not to just get my vote, to really listen to the people, to the people that are hurting. See them. See the people that are hurting, that are losing. Some of them are losing their livelihoods, but most of all, their health. And we really need to do something about it. Cheryl Wilson and Anthony Calafuro were recorded by We the Patients New York, a project of the Community Service Society. Well, for more on medical debt, who has it, what to do about it, we're joined by Elizabeth Benjamin, vice president of health initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York, co-founder of the Healthcare for All New York campaign. Elizabeth, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you just lay out this issue that Bernie Sanders addressed last night and so many people are addressing around? around the country. What exactly is medical debt? And what are these huge hospitals that are nonprofits doing to particularly um, indigent, indigent patients um, who end up in medical debt? Uh, thank you for having me on, Juan and Amy. It's nice to be here. Um, so what it, how many people have medical debt? Actually, it's around 100 million um, people around the country that have medical debt. Uh, and that's racked up to be about $200 million, $195 billion in medical debt people in America are incurring. So, essentially, that's 20 percent of our nation's population. The other thing that's really, you know, extraordinary about this is that there are profound racial and ethnic disparities in terms of who owns medical debt. Twenty-eight percent of African-American folks have medical debt. 22 percent of Latino, Latina, Latinx folks have medical debt. 
17 uh, percent of white folks, 10 percent of Asians. So basically, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a phenomena that really hurts low-income folks and people of color. And that's what all the evidence shows when there's any kind of national research, peer-reviewed journal research, and so forth. And in fact, we know from the, own, the credit reporting agencies that 58 percent of debt that's on people's credit reports is medical debt. So it's a profound problem. It's a ubiquitous problem throughout the country. I think what's most distressing about this is how this medical debt is getting incurred. What we have studied in New York is we did a comprehensive universal analysis looking at every single hospital in New York State, all of which are nonprofit charities, allegedly. Um, and we found that over five years, from 2015 to 2020, by looking at every single county court, you know, civil small claims court record, that they had sued 53,000 patients. Now, interestingly, not all patients, all hospitals sue, but most, I mean, but many do. It's like a, it's a, it's sort of a, a practice that really is done by the sort of big uh, networks and some of the most illustrious hospitals in our system. Uh, this phenomena is also have been found in other states. Wisconsin, for example, there was a big analysis out there that was published in Health and Affairs. But what we've seen is that these nonprofit hospitals, which are bound by IRS rules to not take extraordinary debt collection actions, but these uh, suing people is quite extraordinary um, by the IRS rules. But not only do they sue people and sue kind of a lot of people at huge volume, but also that's not good enough. They were charging 9% interest when the interest rates were 1%. They were charging—they were take, going after people's homes by putting liens on people's homes, which ruins someone's, you know, credit. You might think, well, they aren't foreclosing. Good for them. But actually, taking a lien on someone's home means you can't get a— a, a, consu a consumer loan. You can't get an educational loan. You can't get a car loan. It ruins people's lives. If your pipes burst one winter, you can't get a home equity loan to repair those pipes if you have a lien on your primary residence. And then the other thing we saw was that they were suing six years and beyond. That's, you know, like, who knows what insurance I had six years ago. I happen to because I've been out with the Community Service Society forever, it feels. But other folks don't know. And so what we found was that, you know, what the national data was showing was really happening even in a progressive state like, like New York. And the thing that's kind of cool is that around the country, there are activists in Colorado, there are activists in New Mexico, there are activists in Maryland and, and Massachusetts. And what's happening in Georgia, what's happening is on the ground, people are fighting back. And that's what we, the patients, is all about. And that's what we at the Community Service Society to do, try to do, which is sort of elevate our patients' experiences and try to change things. But, but Elizabeth, uh, many of these hospitals, especially these nonprofit hospitals, uh, number one is that they uh, they often report uh, a significant numbers of charity care and they get reimbursed by many states for their supposed charity care. So what is happening here that they're still going after people who can't uh, pay their bills? So what the hospitals say is we do huge amounts of charity care. We do huge amounts of 
um, public benefit and public good. But when you look close at closely and analyze what they're reporting as a public benefit, it might be a piano in a marble lobby. It might be it might be a, a clinic that they're running where they actually get Medicaid reimbursement. So I think we have to look really carefully at those public benefit numbers. What we noticed in New York State, we actually are one of those states that has what's called an indigent care pool, and we provide $1.1 billion to our nonprofit hospitals because we believe in hospitals. Hospitals save people's lives every single day. We love our hospitals. But these hospitals in New York State were getting around $1.1 billion. But what we noticed is the hospitals that were suing the most and garnishing people's wages and putting liens on people's homes typically were the ones that weren't spending their multi-million dollar allotment on financial assistance to patients. And so how can they get away with that? And one of the ways that they get away with that is there's no requirement that before they sue a patient to look closely at the patient's zip code or, you know, all these sort of independent data to see if they're low income or not. And when we did a data analysis looking hospital, like polling random sample of court files, and looked at the data analysis, we found that these hospitals were disproportionately suing in zip codes that were where people of color or majority minority or people of color live or low-income zip codes. So they weren't even following the state's rule, which is they're supposed to provide financial assistance to people below 300 percent of poverty. And when we analyzed the data, we found that these hospitals had been spending less on financial aid than the way they were pulling down in the, from the indigent care pool. Now, the hospitals say, oh, but this uh, that pool isn't to provide, you know, financial aid to patients. You just don't understand. That's to compensate us for our Medicaid losses. And, you know, I think if you have a thing called the indigent care pool and, you know, as a requirement for having money, pulling money as a hospital out of that indigent care pool, you're supposed to have a financial aid policy. That's a contingency for pulling funds that provides charity care or financial aid up to 300 percent of poverty, then you should spend every single penny you can on financial aid first before compensating you on your alleged Medicaid losses. And could you name some names? Because obviously these uh, hospital chains, uh, they all uh, claim in their advertisements to be for the public good, uh, but yet they're running up huge endowments. They're paying Tremendous salaries to their executive uh, officers. Uh, name some names of the worst offenders when it comes to going after uh, people for debt. Sure. During the 2015-2020 period that we studied, and we went all the way through December 2020, the hospital system that had sued the most people in New York State was um, the Northwell system. And they have quite a substantial endowment. I think what was most upsetting about what they were doing is the the courts were effectively closed to patients between March of 2020 through December of 2020 because of the pandemic. And we found that they had sued thousands of people when the courts were effectively closed. Um, looking at a different data set, the state Supreme Court data set, where um, people are represented, uh, the, the hospital SUNY Upstate in Syracuse is represented by Letitia James, the attorney general of New York, who, you know, claimed that there would be a medical debt moratorium from all SUNY hospitals. 
Um, they sued around 1,500 people a year. No financial aid, apparently, was really being provided, because even patients who had been sued, who were then, after they had gotten a judgment, were found eligible for financial aid, they still were charging them the interest. This poor woman was still being charged and had to pay the interest and all the other judgment-related expenses, you know, which I guess is technically legal, but is it humane? Anyway, that hospital um, was suing around 1,500 people right through the pandemic. We found a bunch of cases that were also being uh, prosecuted during uh, the attorney general's own medical debt moratorium. So I think what's going on is um, there are very aggressive attorneys who um, go to hospitals. And in this case of the, case of the state of New York, um, there's an attorney general's unit up in uh, Syracuse that is very aggressive. And this is how they make their livelihoods, by suing low-income, disproportionately low-income people of color. And it's really a shock, shocking, and it has to stop. Uh, and I think that's what we're re really working hard on um, moving forward. We're trying to say, look, don't let every hospital design and hide their financial aid application. Let's have a common application for financial aid, like we have a common application for financial aid for college, right? We have the one form. Why do we need 210 different forms in New York State? Um, let's let's ban the practice of reporting medical debt to credit agencies. That would single-handedly improve the credit of million, millions and millions of Americans. So there's a couple of bills in Congress that are trying to do that. I think some states are looking into that. We here in New York are going to try to improve our financial assistance um, situation. Um, are, we're really excited because Governor Hochul has um, called in the state of the state for developing a single uniform financial aid form. We think that will cut out a lot of the red tape and make uh, financial assistance more available to patients and really cut down what's happening here in New York with medical debt, which is completely out of control. And finally, we just have a minute, Elizabeth, but the bills that were signed off on by Governor Hochul, of course, started with a grassroots movement in this state just in the last few months. Yes, um, she did sign in the last few months. She, she, you know, we're really grateful to Governor Hochul and to the state legislature for um, really championing medical debt reform. Uh, we passed three bills. We passed a bill that would ban liens and wage garnishments. So non so medical providers, when they sue patients, we're saying, okay, if you must sue, sue, but don't do, don't go nuclear on people. Don't you know put liens on their homes so you're ruining their credit. Don't um, garnish low income working class folks' wages. That makes no sense. They'll never be able to pay you back. Um, we also uh, enacted a bill that would ban this practice of charging what we call resort fees or facility fees in um, for preventive care and requiring hospitals and medical providers to tell people about these so-called facility fees. There is no medical service called facility fee in the CPT code. It's just a resort charge that uh, medical providers like to charge and get away with charging. And we've also um, reduced the statute of limitations from six years to three years and the judgment, consumer judgment interest rate from 9 percent to 2 percent. And we're not done. We're going to keep you know, fighting this fight. It's an important fight. Um, and, you know, to this, you know, huge symptom, as, you know, Senator Sanders said, you know, of our problem, our real problem with our health care system is that we don't have a coherent national health system. Elizabeth Benjamin, I want to thank you for being with us, Vice President of Health Initiatives at the Community Service Society of New York, co-founder of the Healthcare for All New York campaign. Next up, elite capture, how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else. Stay with us. 
by Jedi Mind Tricks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we end today's show with the philosopher Olufemi Otaiwo. He's recently written two widely acclaimed books, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, and Reconsidering Reparations, which focuses in part on the climate crisis. Robin D.G. Kelly, author of Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, has said, quote, Olufemi Otaiwo is a thinker on fire. He not only calls out empire for shrouding its bloodied hands in the cloth of magical thinking, but calls on all of us to do the same. Elite capture, after all, is about turning oppression and its cure into a neoliberal commodity exchange where identities become capitalism's latest currency rather than the grounds for revolutionary transformation. For more, we're joined by Alufemi Otaiwo, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Professor. Thanks so much for being with us. Why don't we start off by you defining the term elite capture? Well, thanks a lot for having me. The basic idea behind elite capture is kind of like the idea behind inequality. Um, so elite capture is what happens when the advantaged few in a group steer the um, resources and political direction of organizations or movements or parts of our um, parts of our social structure, like the justice system, towards their narrower interests and aims. And could you uh, talk about how that uh, works uh, in in practice and day to day uh, activities uh, within uh, uh, black and brown communities, especially? So how this works in practice, I think, works a lot through the ways that we talk and communicate about politics and about what's going on in our lives. I think there's um, often a discussion that is related to elite capture when people talk about the corporate control of media and the result on our kind of day-to-day discussions and day-to-day understanding of politics. So um, when we have conversations about things like racial justice um, or even um, justice with respect to class politics and the class struggle um, and end up steering those conversations around um, the kinds of conversational topics that have to do with uh, representation in elite spaces, whether we're talking about um, universities or maybe uh, media like movies and film and recognition for excellence in those kinds of aspects of life. Um, that is the result, one could argue, I argue, 
of the disproportionate control of the institutions that control how we get information about politics on the day-to-day conversations that we have about politics? Well, obviously, the the Black Lives Matter movement and the upsurge of of protest in recent years has led many of these institutions to to, uh, basically create this whole new diversity, equity and inclusion uh, industry, as I call it. Uh, I'm wondering your sense of how this attempt by the power structures to uh, to uh, co-opt these uh, grassroots movements, how that has affected uh, the uh, the way that uh, especially uh, the uh, African-American and Latino intelligentsia uh, react uh, to the DEI movement. I definitely think there's a big influence there. And on the one hand, I think the response of the powerful to try to co-opt grassroots, grassroots movements in this way kind of reflects um, a sort of political victory that was won. A hundred years ago, um, the powers that be weren't trying to appear um, woke or weren't championing diversity and inclusion. Um, Explicit formal segregation was the rule um, in the United States, in South Africa. And over time, as those systems got pressured by grassroots movements that um, opposed things like Jim Crow and apartheid, then you saw what you're talking about, which was the rise of um, equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives, and the use of the kind of energy generated by those movements to um, kind of wash or paint over the ongoing existence of structural racism and of capitalism and the class injustices that are built into capitalism, um, but do it with, you know, a kind of rainbow coalition of uh, faces in high places. And the intelligentsia at universities, which is one of the um, sectors of society that has been affected by this, has definitely um, responded to the rise in equity, diversity, and inclusion kind of corporate framings by focusing on optics rather than kind of the material struggles which caused the creation of ethnic studies programs in the first place, which caused the rise of um, the study of racial justice and gender justice and all the other sorts of things that get studied under the heading of what we would now think of as EDI. Femi, you uh, talk about the Combahee River Collective and uh, its relation to and uh, framing of identity politics. Tell us what it is. Once again, we've discussed it many times before, um, but how it frames identity politics that you think are critical in this country. So the Combahee River Collective was a collective of queer black women socialists um, that organized in and around Boston in the 1970s and, of course, has um, the members of the collective have continued to be involved in politics since. And they coined this term identity politics um, that now gets used a lot these days. And as they thought of identity politics or as they wrote about it in their manifesto, identity politics was essentially the drive to do politics starting from a first personal basis. So you um, look 
at your life and your political circumstances and figure out your political priorities and work from there. That's compatible with ending up in coalitional politics, which is, in fact, what uh, many of the members of this coalition did, in fact, do. But I think nowadays when people use the term identity politics, they're thinking of the ways of talking about identity that circulate on social media, which are maybe more commonly hostile to coalitional politics um, or at least suspicious about coalitional politics and which seem to emphasize and encourage people kind of splitting up into smaller and smaller groups and only being willing to work with and advocate for um, people whose identities match theirs or most closely match um, the person who's speaking. And that's quite different from what I understand the point of the Combi River Collective's coining of the term identity politics to be. Uh, in your book, you also talk about uh, lessons that can be learned from the uh, African struggle against colonialism, specifically in Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau against Portuguese colonialism in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, could you expound on that? Yes. So um, the wars of independence that were fought um, throughout the African continent and the world beyond the African continent were linked. And the Bissau, Guinean, and Cape Verdean struggle against the Portuguese empire was one of these. They had to organize um, within themselves and across the groups that divided them and the groupings that divided them. That included divides between Bissau, Guineans, and Cape Verdeans. That included divides on religious grounds and ethnic grounds between people. And they had to organize, zooming out, across much larger divides. Um, they were part of a wave of African independence struggles that were organizing with each other through the Organization of African Unity, as it was called then, and um, across some of the new country lines. There was international support from countries like Bulgaria and Sweden and the Soviet Union and Cuba even went as far as to send troops. And all of these kinds of divisions or potential divisions were things that they had to be willing to work across to get their goal accomplished, which was defeating the Portuguese empire, which was a NATO member state and had the material support of country, corporations like Lockheed Martin and countries like the United States. And they were ultimately successful in that struggle because they were willing to work across all of those kinds of factors of division. Professor Taiwo, finally, in the minute we have left, a recent Grist interview described you as one of America's most prominent philosophers who argue that climate change calls us to rethink world history. Can you lay out what you call the constructive view of reparations? Basically, what I mean by the constructive view of reparations is the idea that we do need the people who have gotten rich off the spoils of yesterday's injustice, yesterday's apartheid, yesterday's laying of the groundwork for today's capitalism. Um, and there needs to be redistribution um, from the large corporations that have gotten all that wealth to the rest of the people throughout the world. But the point of that redistribution isn't just so we can shuffle around, you know, cells on an Excel spreadsheet. 
I think we should also be building a different kind of world that doesn't structurally run on racism and other kinds of uh, oppression and capitalism. And the construction of constructive view is the point of building that world. That world would have a much different energy system. It would produce things in a different way. It would manage resources in a different and more democratic way. And I think those are the kinds of changes we have to think about building rather than only thinking about redistributing money or only thinking about tearing down the structures that we have now. Olufemi Otaiwo, we want to thank you so much for being with us, associate professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, author of most recently two books, the most recent, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, and Reconsidering Reparations. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Gesder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasain, Natami Warren, Afterina Nandura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, our general manager, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.